0: I would invite you, if you are a leader, if you set up the meeting, my invitation to you is commence every meeting at five after the hour. If it's planned to be a one hour meeting, just make it a 50 minute meeting and conclude at five to the hour. And this will have enormous systemic
1: change. Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's totally free. In today's episode, we are joined by Oscar Trimbley, a dedicated advocate for deep listening and transformative leadership. Oscar's journey spans the realms of marketing and technology, where he has worked with industry giants such as Microsoft, Cisco and Google. He is an author, speaker, and host of the acclaimed Deep Listening podcast. In today's episode, he unveils the profound impact of active listening on leadership and effective communication. More specifically, though, we dig into the art of pre-conversation listening, along with the power of presence and breathing. We chatted about making the shift from listening to speak, where we're just listening for the pause or breath so we can jump in and state our opinion or give our perspective, from listening to truly understand. He also shares his own very touching journey of transformation, which dramatically changed the book that he wrote. And in addition to all of that, Oscar also answers two direct questions from members of my community, Dave Marshall and Derek Davies. So let's not delay any further. Here is my conversation with Oscar Trimbley. Oscar, first of all, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us today. Really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yeah. G'day Ben. I'm also looking forward to your questions and looking forward to what expands from that.
1: Absolutely. I'm sure we will rapidly go off the planned questions I've got here, but let me start off at least with with the first one that's on my list, which is really the, the context question, I guess. So, can you tell me and listeners a, a little bit about yourself and what led you to really focus in on and get so passionate about listening as a, as a topic? And I've got to say before you start answering, having once before had someone who specializes in listening on the show, I feel under a little bit of pressure as the podcast host to really dial up my my listening to make sure I'm kind of doing what I should and setting a good example. So feeling slightly on the back foot, I must say.
0: Huh. I'm, I'm curious why you feel pressured.
1: I think it's just when, when you're when you with someone who is a true expert in a particular area, maybe it's just me or something in my psyche, but you feel this need to sort of do what they talk about and what they do really, really well yourself. I think maybe it just focuses you in on your listening and a little bit of your mind talk is going, am I a good listener? Am I paying good enough attention? Am I listening to everything he said? Am I drifting? And your, your mind talk can start going a little bit crazy, I think.
0: Yeah. So just relax. Uh, just imagine we're in a pub having a pint and we're having a chat. I'm not here to judge your listening. And more importantly, those listening aren't either. I'm not a perfect listener. I'm far from it. Uh, they say you teach what you need to know, so you know i'm gonna I'm gonna quest myself to learn how to be a better listener myself. and uh, it's very common that an aware host actually makes this reflection about oh, all of a sudden I have to be in my best behavior. It lasts about seven minutes and then everybody just relaxes into whatever their default behaviour is
1: there. I'll start the clock seven minutes from now. I'll check back in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, and back to your original question, to understand
0: where it all started, you have to go into a boardroom in Sydney in April of 2008. I'm sitting in the annual budget setting process for Microsoft. We're setting a budget between Sydney, Singapore and Seattle, our regional and global headquarters And the Microsoft fiscal year starts on the 1st of July. So April, you need to have the budgets locked in by then so that the organisation can complete its financial plan for the current year. The meeting goes for 90 minutes and it's called a budget setting meeting. So the budget literally is uploaded into the finance system at the end of this meeting. Now, at the 20-minute mark, my Vice President, Tracy, who's sitting across the room from me in Sydney, says to me, Oscar... I need to see you immediately after this meeting. It's the equivalent of, honey, we need to talk. And I did not pay attention for the rest of the meeting. What I did was I took out a pen. I figured out how many weeks of salary I've got left, how many weeks of salary I might get paid. And the meeting actually finished at the 70-minute mark, which is quite unusual. The meeting finished 20 minutes early. And everybody kind of packed up their laptops and started moving out of the room, and so did I. And Tracy said, don't forget to close that door, Oscar, because we still need to chat. And I thought, okay. I stepped about four paces after locking the door back towards the boardroom table, and she said to me, you have no idea what you did at the 20-minute mark, do you? And then all I thought was, I'm getting fired. I don't even know why. So I sat down. She looked me straight in the eye. And she said, Oscar, if you could code how you listen, you could change the world. Ben, this is what was going through my head. Woohoo! I haven't been fired. Yeah, wow. And I think it's an important lesson for leaders. No matter what you say, the person listening is making it mean something very, very different unless you check in. And in that moment, I stepped out of the room. I never thought about that listening thing ever again because I did realize at the end of the meeting, because I wasn't paying attention, one of my new revenue lines went up from 12, 13, 14% to 32, 33%. Mm-hmm. Not a good outcome for me. And then two weeks later, my chief financial officer, Brian, said, um, Oscar, could you come to the budget setting meeting? Because now we're sending this budget out to the, all the different parts of Australia. I need you to audit my listening. I just shook my head and I said, oh, Brian, you've been talking to Tracy about this listening stuff, haven't you? I said, i got a 32% uplift in my budget. I haven't got time for this. And he he said something really profound for anybody who's ever had to meet a sales target. He said, look, Oscar, I can't change the top line, but we can invest for growth in your part of the business. And I just said, Brian, what time? Where is it? I'll be there. So I get to this meeting with Brian and I go, oh, okay. There's about 18 people in this room too, some in via video, but he's kind of only talking to two or three and he's got triple barrel questions and he's cutting people off and I'm I'm writing down and I'm making notes. And then I look at my piece of paper and I go, oh, my God, I'm coding how to listen literally in front of me. And since that point in time... We've coded how to listen for 28,000 workplace listeners in our research, through our listening quiz, our hundreds of podcast interviews, our jigsaw puzzle games, our, our playing cards, our three books, our speaking. All of that has been to show people how to listen in the workplace. So from a very amazingly insightful observation by Tracy. I started off on, and, and I didn't leave Microsoft till many years later, but that was the the match that lit the fire, that got it going. Tracy heard me say something that I said virtually in every meeting, and she just noticed how that changed the trajectory of the meeting, and the question that I asked was the reason the meeting was shorter. Now, if I would have paid attention, <laughs> I wouldn't have had to deal with a big uplift, but that actually became quite academic because we ended up figuring out how to do it. So that's how it started.
1: I'm really interested in like, Tracy's role in that as well, Oscar, because communicate has two parts to communication, right? There's the listener, the receiver and the interpretation that they make, as you said, but there's also the person speaking and being conscious and aware of the impact that, of the words that they have. So when Tracy said that to you, I forget the exact words, like, Oscar, I need to speak to you afterwards. Was that abnormal in terms of how Tracy communicated? Was the thought process that went on in your head, was it because, hang on, I'm not familiar with Tracy behaving in this way and saying things like that. So did that sort of set off the the spiral of thinking for you or not?
0: I think one of the things you have to understand is there's this enormous theatre in this three dimensional chess game that's being played between sydney singapore and and seattle, and there's a it's a set piece where careers are made or broken, basically, yeah, so when Tracy said what she said, it wasn't had Tracy said those words to me before, yes, had she used that tone before? no, and it was the tonality of how it was said not the actual word for word, that got me thinking, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, Tracy and I had an excellent relationship and, and, and we could pretty much say anything to each other. Yeah. And, and nothing was off limits because we, we both sought to be our best selves at work for our teams. That was, that was the thing we really had in common where we, were, we could detach pretty easy from us to them yeah, and the dialogue between her and I was often very simple because we'd just go, "Yes, yes, but what does it mean for the business?" And, and she valued that in me. So yeah, it was just just the tonality. She could have just said, "You know, we need to talk immediately after this meeting," with a wink in her eye. Yeah, and I would have interpreted something completely different. But I think it was the tension of the of the meeting. But that was on me. There was nothing in what she said or how she said it. That was, as I look back, it's like there's no reason for you to think it. There's absolutely nothing that you would think you would get fired. Yeah.
1: So after that meeting, some time passes. Brian invites you to go and pay attention and audit kind of the listening in 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 his team. Where where does the story go go after that? What what happened next, and how did you continue to explore this topic?
0: Well, look, I I think that story is kind of the match, but. If you go back in my history, I, I was renowned. Uh, people would want to come and join the teams I was leading regularly. I'd get calls from New York or London. Or, you know, They'd meet me at a conference and I'd like to see how I could move to Australia and join your team. Now, I was not naive. They didn't want to join my team. They wanted to move to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I always said to them was, before we meet, listen to a customer and tell me something i don't know about them right and we would regularly have our team meetings in the customer contact center as an example so for the hour before a team meeting i'd invite our team just to listen on the on the calls for all the support calls coming in just so they understood the kind of questions customers were having and the question not the question that tracy noticed but the question i was regularly saying to people, and people roll their eyes, it's like, Ben, great idea. What do you think the customers would think about that? And Ben typically would go, whatever. And I'd go, great, can you go and talk to a few customers about that? And for some it's fear, and for some it's they lean into the whole conversation. So from very early days at work, and and I had a a leader who always said to me, Oscar, the truth is always in the field. Mm whoever's closest to where you're creating value, so that's customers in a commercial sense, the voters in a policy and political sense. In your prior profession, it's literally the field, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, that, that is where the truth is. You can have all kinds of maps and strategies, but once contact's made, the plans go out the window kind of thing. So I had a really big initiative to move Microsoft from DVDs and onto data centres, we had to move from transmitting software over computer disks over the internet. We had to move from charging people money up front to charging them monthly, and that was a huge challenge. 14,000 organisations resold Microsoft product in our geography, and it represented about a quarter of a million employees. So it was a huge, huge change, and one that Tracy had asked me to kind of sign up for the best part of five years. When the five years was up... I'd had a series of meetings with all of these external partners and they'd often invite me into their strategic offsite and planning review and just said, can you do that listening thing for our team? And eventually I just said, um, hey, would you pay for that? And they said, oh, yeah, for sure. I said, oh, well, I can't accept payment because we've got a moonlighting policy at Microsoft. And then I got even more courage and it's like, well, how much would you pay for that? And I kind of went, hmm, okay. So people would pay for that. Now, whether they say they pay for it and whether they do is a completely other story, but that's on me. Slowly, I got enough confidence whilst learning to listen because the way I was trying to code how to listen wasn't how I was listening. If we rebound to what Tracy said, if you could code how you listen, you could change the world. If we had that time again, I would say to Tracy, can we just teach people to notice how they listen as a starting point? That would be that. Because I don't think it's how I listen. It's just coding how to teach people how to listen. So I did a huge amount of academic research. I did a lot of training with Israeli professors, UK professors, U.S. professors, Canadian professors, German professors, all who specialise in different elements of listening. But listening is a contact sport. You can't do it by yourself. You have to do workshops. You have to have the one-on-one conversations. And the thing that was really fascinating was board observation, where I'd be brought in to observe boards because their listening is really, really consequential. If they don't get their listening right, there's all kinds of consequences, regulatory people's jobs, people's lives in a safety context, for example, in mining or manufacturing organisations. I often say the difference between hearing and listening is action. And I wanted to honour Tracy's request and and take action on that.
1: There's so so much to um, unpick here, Oscar. My mind's going in all sorts of different directions with questions to ask you. So, I don't think there's a particular order that's gonna gonna work here, but so we're at the seven minute mark, mate. Yeah, so I think I've uh, completely relaxed in. You see, yeah. I just want to jump in on that piece around when you've been listening to boards and and executive teams. So many years ago, I. Was doing quite a lot of sort of a leader as coach workshops, where I was teaching senior leaders and execs to bring in some of the skills of a of a coach to how they lead and manage on a day to day basis. Now, one of the key skills for any great coach is the ability to to listen. So naturally, I'd do a little bit of listening training with them. And one of the things I often used to sketch out and talk through—I'm sure you're familiar with it—is is a pyramid of listening, where at the bottom you've got sort of your lowest level of listening which my take was always that it's the most common level and actually it's not that good and I'd often say what people tend to actually be listening for at this level is not what the other person is saying certainly not trying to understand the meaning but really they're listening for a pause so they can jump in and state their point so you don't have a conversation you get a series of sort of monologues where everyone's just pitching their their ideas, stating their position, and it has nothing really to do or very little to do with what the other person is, is saying. Does that ring true for you? Did you kind of witness that sort of, I'm going to use the word quality, but it's not really quality, right, of, of, of listening?
0: One of the fallacies that's implied in what we just talked about there is that listening commences when you engage with the speaker and that's interesting but there's actually a step before that that everybody misses and if you don't have this foundational step in place you can never get to the next step that you just talked about and why people struggle where they want to get their point in and wait for the pause and respond rather than seek to understand and all those things they haven't done this basic work So listening commences not by focusing on the speaker, but by listening to yourself. When you think about that executive environment or that board environment, you can imagine people's minds have so many multiple browser tabs open that at some point the memory is going to flood and the browser will literally crash. To be effective at listening, you need to close down those browser tabs yourself first. You need to be open to you Otherwise, all your listening will be completely filtered on the last meeting, the next meeting, the risk and audit committee that's immediately prior or After All these things are going through your head. So one of the being rather than doing, uh, listening requires you to be yourself and be listening, not doing listening. It's an interesting distinction that many people like, oh, okay. I remember interviewing Dame Evelyn Glennie from North England, originally from Scotland, a world-renowned percussionist and profoundly deaf by the age of 12. And her music master, Ron Forbes, asked her to play her drum with her shoes off and he played a particular note on the timpani and he asked Evelyn did she notice that note differently with her feet on the ground versus through her shoes? And she said, absolutely. And from that point on, Dame Evelyn Glennie has always played barefoot. But the point she made to me when I interviewed her via video, and remember she's profoundly deaf, so she lip read the whole thing, is that if your body is in tune, listening becomes really light and easy. So then we can move to the next step, and the next step is getting into the content itself. But until you're grounded, before you do what an orchestra does before a performance and tune your listening instrument, which is not your ears, it's not your eyes, it's not your mind, it's your entire body, including your state of mind, if you can bring that presence you will profoundly change the way the speaker expresses their idea because they'll say what they mean, not what they say, in a much shorter time frame. because they will feel relaxed and know that there's no judgement present and we just want to have a conversation. So my first learning from all these wise people who've taught me along the way when it comes to listening, unless your instrument is ready, you can never be ready to engage with the other, whether that other is an individual or a group. Yet once you do, many of us don't even notice we have a listening battery. You know, it's green, it's orange, it's yellow, it's red, it's black. You know, we we come into conversations at different points during the day or different contexts where our battery isn't even charged enough to have the conversation. But if you're not noticing yourself first... You can't get into that conversation. What colour is your listening battery at right now, Ben?
1: Well, as we're recording this, it's, it's 8.30 in, in the UK. went out for dinner last night, deliberately only drank sparkling water, slept really well. So mine is probably uh, fairly fully charged and on, on, on green, actually.
0: So this conversation is easy, right? Yeah. If it was red, I'd probably encourage us to reschedule Of course, you probably can't be as effective for those who are listening in right now uh, as you have been. Mm. I love the way you're keeping the connection. Even though we're going through video, you're deliberately working as hard as you can to notice me facially and keeping eye contact. That's a really good way to listen through a mediated environment. Well done.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting as well. Sometimes I, I, I share this when I'm running some of my programs as well. So in order to be able to do this, because this is audio only, and even when we share a few little snippets of the video and social, people won't be able to see this because they won't be able to see my my setup. I've got a really strange setup here that enables me to maintain good good eye contact. So I'm looking at you on a, on a monitor, but actually – coming right in front of the monitor on a little bendy arm is a is a small webcam, which is is obscuring just a tiny bit of your face. But it means I can look directly at, at you, at your eyes to maintain eye contact. And I'm near as damn it also staring into the lens of the lens of the camera because it makes such a big difference, right? And that just means I can relax and just naturally look at you without part of my brain power being used up thinking right I've got to look at the camera so Oscar thinks I've got eye contact but now I need to check back and look at him to read his body language back to the camera to him camera to him yeah it helps you I hope feel that you're being listened to and it's one less thing that I need to be doing mentally so as much of my mental capacity is on the conversation and what you're what you're saying. Back to one of your previous points Oscar around sort of preparing ourselves for for the conversation and setting ourselves up so that we we can listen is part of the the challenge with listening in the in the modern world then that there are just so many distractions there's so much information coming at us we are bouncing from one meeting to the other that let's talk about kind of leaders because that's kind of uh, the audience i have here it makes it harder, right? Because there's just so much stuff coming at us. So the skill of being able to pause and manage transitions from one meeting to, to the next becomes arguably more important than it ever has, right? Would you agree?
0: It's the thing you'll be remembered for when you start the meeting. As leaders, it's a privilege and you cast a shadow that's very disproportionate to your height, in the organisation. And I would invite you if you are a leader, and a leader is anybody who influences anybody else, but if you are a leader who's influencing a system, if you set up the meeting, I can give you three other very simple practices to perform, but this one will dramatically change the way you and anybody else who participates in your meetings will arrive Give attention and productively have a conversation with you. Time as we know it was only created in the late 1800s in England so the trains would run on time. Up until then every town had its own time. So we have a lot to thank the Victorians for in terms of time and then we don't. <laughs> so on the one hand I would go time is a complete fiction. And so is the one-hour meeting. And I have to apologise in advance because I used to sell the software that defaults everything to the one-hour meeting.
1: <laughs> so you're to blame. I'm to blame.
0: So if you and your admin, your chief of staff, your executive assistant, your personal assistant, my invitation to you is this will sound so simple to say, yet it's difficult to do. But if you do this, you can can change the system because you cast such a long shadow. And that is this, commence every meeting at five after the hour. Mm -hmm. If it's planned to be a one-hour meeting, just make it a 50-minute meeting and conclude at five to the hour. And this will have enormous systemic change. Let me tell you the tale of two meetings. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The meeting was due to start at the top of the hour everybody arrived, but people came in and it was two minutes after the hour and there was some banter going on at three minutes, four minutes. And then at five minutes, the leader says, look, everybody's here. So let's start. This is true face-to-face or video. And then at five to the hour, somebody arrives, hurried and rushed. I'm really sorry. I'm late, but I had a back-to-back meeting and I got here as quickly as I could, but that one just ran over time and I'm completely present. The person who arrives at five after the hour is mentally checked into the meeting at 10 minutes past the hour. And they've just disrupted the people who were there on time Mm -hmm. and you have just wasted the best part of 20% of your effective meeting time. Now, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He's The same people invited to the same meeting, it commences at five after the hour. Some people arrive on the top of the hour, some people arrive at five after the hour. But that same person arrives at five after the hour, goes, oh, I'm so glad this meeting starts at five after the hour. I'm here on time and I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden, changing meet start time by five minutes will dramatically alter the way dialogue takes place. It's effectiveness, it's Productivity, it's quality. It's that simple. Now, by the way, no matter which email system you use or calendaring system, you can change the default to start at five after the hour. You don't, you don't even have to think about it. As a leader, if you can just control the meetings you host, that will have a ripple effect through the system because if the meeting was scheduled for 50 minutes, that will give them five minutes to visit the bathroom, to have a cup of tea, to collect their thoughts and process the last meeting before they arrive at the next one. Time is our fiction. Let's use time to our advantage. Now, when leaders hear this, they quite often chuckle, and go, Oscar, you don't know my industry. You don't know my profession. You don't know our organisation. And I always just say, just humour me. Pick just your team meeting, just your team meeting. Typically, they'll have a weekly team meeting, and I'll check in after a fortnight. After a fortnight, I check in and they giggle, and they go, yeah, that person, I know who that is now. I said, and that person might be you in your manager's meeting. And then they they have a little bit of a laugh. So the most systemic thing you can do as a leader to alter the way, the quality of the dialogue, which includes the quality of the listening, is to shorten meetings and create space for the meeting. Now, basic hygiene needs to take place too. You need to have agendas for your meetings. I know that sounds like table stakes, but you'd be shocked kinds of leaders and and businesses that don't three really simple tips for everybody else if you're invited to one of these meetings use the technology don't let the technology use you in our research for twenty-eight thousand workplace listeners we know now the biggest culprit when it comes to electronic notifications is the connected watch
1: ah interesting the
0: connected watch where if I was to say to you, Ben, <laughs> how long does it take to look at the time? Yeah, it would be a quick glance and off you go. As opposed to glance, glance, tap, 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 scroll, tap, tap. We know what you're doing. Use the technology. Don't let the technology use you. Whatever operating system you've got, there's one button to press. That's how hard it is. Yeah. Tip two, um, drink a glass of water before you go into a meeting. And if you're in a face-to-face meeting, encourage everybody to have water. Uh, and if you're running offsites and meetings like that make sure the water gets refreshed at every break and then tip number 3 if you're noticing your state isn't where it needs to be because your state matters more than your script as a leader 100% remember how tracy said that to me had as much impact as what she said mm-hmm. just take 3 deep breaths whether you're a navy seal whether you're an opera singer, whether you're an Olympic athlete, for critical performance that has predictable outcomes, controlling and noticing the pattern of their breathing is one of the first things they do to get their state dialed in to the task at hand. Yeah. Now, for those of you who aren't on video, Ben is furiously nodding at the last one, so I'm curious... What's going through your mind when you talk about breathing?
1: When I'm listening to you talking about breathing there, it's reminded me of a pattern I've been picking up from doing this podcast for the best part of two 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 and a half years now. And I'm really privileged to have senior MDs and CEOs on the show, but also a huge number of thought leaders and, and experts in a particular field such as yourself. And I've had people on talking about listening and professors of leadership and burnout prevention specialists and psychologists talking about imposter syndrome and and everything in, in between. As well actually as over the past probably 18 months going on a bit of a journey myself sort of exploring how I manage emotions and some sort of challenging things I've had going on in in my personal life and more and more from that journey and listening to all of those people talk I'm just realising that part of the solution for so many challenges be it in leadership or in our personal life is breathing Breathing is part of the or one of the jigsaw puzzle pieces that just helps us be better, happier, calmer, more positive, better parents, husbands, partners. It's just so, so critical. And whether that's box breathing techniques, like you mentioned Navy SEALs, use free deep breaths, mindfulness meditation, practice, the sigh breath where you do a short inhale, a long inhale, and then a out like it is so so powerful and the thing I find amazing is nobody gets taught how to to breathe really or the importance of breathing like why is that not taught to our kids when they're really young in in school especially in that hyper-connected kind of world that that we're in now it's just so so profound I think being conscious and able to regulate and actively do something with your breath.
0: Mm. And the important part that Ben mentioned there, it's not the breathing part that's the important part of what he just mentioned. It's the noticing of your breathing. Mm. Is your breathing shallow? Is it accelerated? Is it appropriate for the state you want to create, not just for yourself, but for those that you lead in the moment? Noticing your breath and once you've noticed that and mastered that, that you can bring calm to a situation. Then you can move to noticing their breath because you you can notice so much just by the speaker's breathing as well. Mm. Now, the great yogic traditions, the great religious traditions, the very ancient cultures of the Māori, the Indigenous communities of Australia, the Inuit of North America, the the Eskimo, the Native Indians of North America, the Eurasian tribes spanning from Mongolia all the way across to Russia. These tribes and cultures and religions all have very specific traditions of teaching the importance of breath. In most religious traditions, they do that through the tempo of the singing yeah. or the praying that is being done. It's very subtle, but it is embedded in breath work. And if you want to double click really a long way on this, James Nestor has written three books on this where he's tracked the history of the breathing traditions and he, his work is immense he he's done a lot of work in the free diving community these are people who literally dive hundreds of meters into the ocean with no additional oxygen right and they're literally breathing using very ancient techniques and the best listening cultures are the best storytelling cultures hmm. and and that's why it's so important to teach your children through storytelling at nighttime because you're teaching them how to listen. And if you don't think that my five-year-old granddaughter is listening when I'm reading a book, I'll just skip a couple of pages for fun and she'll point out that I just skipped some pages, even though she's not even looking at the pages, she's just listening. So kids will amaze you. But the ancients, whether it's around breath, whether it's around hydration, which is true around the great yogic traditions of the East, these are fundamentals. They don't change over time. And no matter how much we talk about hyperconnected systems and technologies and all of this, the answer is still within us, to be present to us, to start to work on us and lead ourselves first, listen to ourselves first. And by being listening rather than trying to teach it to anybody, you'll have a much more profound impact as a leader. You'll hear things from customers that the competitors won't hear. You'll hear things during recruitment processes that mean you'll attract the right kind of staff. You'll be in dialogue with regulators in a way that's productive rather than in conflict. The more senior you are, the more consequential your listening is because you don't want to be in front of those parliamentary inquiries to justify something that wasn't actioned despite the fact the system was collecting the complaints, whether that's hospitals, banks, military organizations, or anything in between. So be a good listener first as a leader, but that starts by listening to yourself.
1: Oscar, there's a couple of questions I've got from members of my community that I'd love to ask you. But before we get there, there's one other question I want to ask, and I'll just set this up really by just Pulling a, a few strands together. So, if we go back to my opening comment, when I just after I hit the record button and said oh, I feel slightly under pressure to um, to really be a good good listener on this conversation, the the flip side of that, I guess, which I didn't articulate particularly well at, at the start, is the really positive from that is because I knew you're such an expert on on listening joining this conversation. I very clearly started with the intention of, I I really want to listen well. And whilst, as you said, seven minutes in, kind of most of us very much relax in, that absolutely happened. But I think because I have been very focused on on listening, I feel very connected to you. And we don't really know each other, right? We had a 20 minute kind of pre call about eight weeks ago to set the podcast up. And we've been on this call for, 41 minutes now but actually feel feel very connected because i think we've both been working hard on that and to really pay attention and 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 listen that being the case you may have seen this when i dropped over some potential questions there's there's a sentence right at the front of your book that I suspect many people might completely miss because in inverted commas, they just want to dive into the, the good stuff and, and the content, but I'd love you just to share a, a little bit more about it. And it's, it's the dedication. Um, for those listeners who haven't got a copy of the book, I'll, I'll just read it. Cause I've got it on my notes here. So the, the wonderful dedication you've got is to my father who lost the youth, use of his tongue from his stroke and taught me to listen without words. Yeah.
0: So the good news is my dad was in that state for about six weeks. And thanks to some amazing speech therapy and the neurologist at the hospital, he's now able to walk and talk. But for six weeks, he couldn't swallow. So I had to drink thickened water. I I, Literally, it's ironic because today was uh, year three anniversary. I took him to the neurologist that treated him for his checkup. And uh, I brought him over a chocolate custard to um, celebrate. And the story behind the chocolate custard is that was the only food he would look forward to. And There was a guy, Alan, in the bed next to my dad. And and Alan was a bit further along the path than my dad. And we'd chat with Alan and Alan's family and he was really good support for my dad. And one day, Alan was discharged, but they brought breakfast to him and Alan didn't like chocolate custard, but he always ordered the chocolate custard and he would give it to my dad. My dad was still in that stage where he couldn't speak and he he was kind of trying to tilt his head, which he didn't have much control about, and and kind of with his eyes pointing to Alan's bed and the chocolate custard. And um, this is a perfect example. He couldn't say anything and I'm I'm trying to figure it out, Ben. It's like... And I, and I moved into full commando mode because I could see the cleaners were coming in to clean up the tables and I jumped across <laughs> to the other bed and grabbed the chocolate custard. It's that shared experience. But when we first took Dad into hospital, what we saw, what I saw in his eyes, because he couldn't say it, was was fear and frustration and anxiety and anger and all all the emotions that were bubbling up because he just, he, he would just sound like somebody who was garbling their words. He was trying as hard as he could to say things. And what I was fortunate, Cotten Johnson, who's um, a chief listening officer in a, in a hospital in the Netherlands, I rang her up. She's in my network. She's a listening expert and advocates on behalf of patients who literally can't speak. And I said, in this is what's happened. She said, oh, look, Oscar, the only tip I will give you is when the medical staff come in to have a conversation, they'll talk to you, go and sit on your dad's bed and move your head as close as possible to your dad. So your dad feels like part of the process of his recovery, because typically the medical staff will talk over the patient and talk to the, you know, the child, the parent whoever the case may be Mm. and and I I mentioned that to my dad a couple of years ago but I think unless you have that lived experience where someone literally can't speak you have no clue on how layered listening really is because communication is so much more than our words Mm. The, the the anger I saw from him on week two where he he wasn't making progress with a speech therapist And the speech therapist would say, look, you know, last week you couldn't even swallow water and you're swallowing water. It's like, in my dad's head, it's like, why aren't I fully recovered and out of this place, right? So that that actually stopped the book from being written because I had to ring up my publisher and say, look, this is what's happened. I can't meet the manuscript timelines. And they, they were obviously brilliant and just said, no problem, whenever you're ready. But I approached... The, at that stage, I was up to the second rewrite of the manuscript. I approached the rewrite in a very, very different way, apart from changing the dedication, of course. Yeah. And I spent much more time thinking about being listening rather than doing listening because if I was doing listening, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, he is where he is and we'll make the best out of it. But just, just lying down next to him on the bed when the medical staff were there, just the fact that your eye level and they're staring down at you, you have a completely different empathy for the patient as an example. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And for you as a leader, you talk about being customer centric, but are you really down at eye level or are you just mouthing it? Are you talking about the importance of people in the organisation? When was the last time you dialled into the contacts and heard the real issues? Mm -hmm. Have you listened to your employee engagement complaints? No, not categorise it, literally read it word for word Mm -hmm. and let that just sit with you. I think it's easy to make business abstract, to make an organisation abstract, but I think my dad helped me to get to a deeper sense of being there rather than doing the right thing for him because that was my mindset, like ring my sister, make sure my aunties know the schedule, my cousins, all the extended family... And in the first two, three days, it was all very mechanical about his care. But then I realised the care I could offer him the most was just being there with him.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. Thank you a great deal because I think there's two things to to that story that we can potentially take away. There's the transferable lessons, insights, skills we, we can take and, and apply to work, but also there's the fact that for many of us probably many the bulk of the listeners are of a similar sort of age where perhaps we have got sort of aging parents who might suffer from stroke or in my case dementia so some of the points you you shared there actually are are really helpful for many of us in our personal lives as well as the work So, so thank you for sharing that. Two questions from my community so the first one comes from Dave Marshall who's in my Facebook group and this is Dave's question. I've struggled in the past to communicate effectively to the whole team. The message appeared to be getting to the majority so I was wondering if it was my communication skills or their listening. What are the common barriers to effective listening and what exercises or techniques can I use to overcome these? Kind of feels like we've talked around this quite a lot already for our conversation. Is there anything else you would you would add and share to to Dave at all? Um,
0: first thanks Dave for the question uh, and very courageous for you to ask it on Facebook. I'll be curious if anybody in the Facebook group has a reflection for Dave as well, please help him out. I think a good meeting host will try and answer the question. A great meeting host will try and get the group to answer the question as well. I think there's much more wisdom in the group. So I'm going to decompose it into two parts, uh, the speaking part and the listening part, because communication is a simultaneous equation. What is said and what is heard. The first thing as leaders we need to become conscious of is we would typically communicate with our default communication preference. And to make it simple, your default communication preference is either telling a story or talking about statistics. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it's either giving something a context and a flow or some kind of evidence. You're talking big picture or you're talking detail. And as you're hearing this, Dave, I'd like you to kind of figure out which one's your primary uh, speaking orientation. Because as leaders, eventually we know our team, but when we don't, lead with the story, land with the data. Now, if your communication preference is story only, you may have lost that person because they hear in details first or vice versa. You may talk in details and they would prefer to hear how it's all connected. Many leaders I work with, I say to them, I hear the ingredients. I sense some of the recipe you've got to tell me what's on the menu first yeah nice so for dave on the speaker side of the equation when you don't know the audience don't do it this way Minced meat tomato sauce garlic onions salt and pepper Ben, what am I making? Bolognese, aren't you? I could be making bolognese. What else could I be making, though? Lots of things, I guess. Yeah, we could be making tacos. We could be making uh, lasagna. We could be making a whole bunch of things. And many leaders talk in ingredients. Mm -hmm. They decompose parts. And the person is trying to make the connections first, as opposed to, hey, Ben, every Sunday around 10 o'clock, I make my nonna's pasta al forno, otherwise known as lasagna, and the family gets together, and there's always a beautiful red tablecloth because that was my nonna's favourite. And her recipe has got garlic and onions, and it's got minced meat, and we use tomatoes. We don't use tomato sauce. And we have a special bechamel and when we put the cheese on top, about lunchtime, when it's about to come out of the oven, it just puts this warm blanket over the family. And for me, that's all about nostalgia. Now, Ben, you're salivating right now, I'm guessing, even though we're continents apart, right? <laughs> but when I said mincemeat, tomatoes, garlic, you're, you weren't salivating, you weren't connecting with that story. As leaders, you have to get really good at talking about the menu and then you can talk about the ingredients and the recipe where it's appropriate. My sense, Dave, is they weren't hearing you because you weren't speaking in their language. It had very little to do with their listening. As leaders, unfortunately, we have to take responsibility for the way we communicate and we have to communicate in a universal way. Stories, then statistics. Big picture, then the data not the bottom-up, because when you talk bottom-up, people can take from that tacos, bolognese, lasagna, who knows, right? So as leaders, if you want your communication to have impact, menu first, and then you'll have them salivating.
1: Brilliant. Amazing answer. Oscar, I've got one more listener question for you, which is an interesting one, actually. I'm not sure... Um, if you've got any expertise around this one. But let me, let me ask you, because it is quite specific. So this is from Derek Davies, who's actually my brother-in-law. Uh, so I call him Dell. So Dell's question is, as someone with ADHD and someone who struggles to listen to anything other than what they want to hear, what advice would you give me to create an environment where I can focus on the key message or at least recognise when I may have missed the main point? Thanks, Del. It's a, it's a more common question than you might imagine. When, it, when I was
0: speaking to Christopher in an interview about neurodiversity and the role of communication, he made the point that he was a summer camp counsellor and his summer camp counsellor would give him a five-minute instruction and they just clashed. Christopher lost interest in the first 90 seconds. But Christopher was aware enough to go, no, there's conflict in the communication, there's conflict in the relationship. I'm not doing it as well as I should. Then he said to his camp counsellor, can we have a conversation about how we communicate? To be effective with me, can you say it in one sentence and then give me the explanation Rather than me trying to find the meaning and I actually get lost within 90 to 120 seconds and this is not uncommon, not just for people with ADHD, but anybody who's sitting outside the standard deviation on neurodiversity. So unfortunately in the first instance, Dell, and my advice is practice this with somebody you know and trust first, their name might be Ben. And simply say to them, effective communication for me is like this. You know, say it quickly up front, and if I'm interested, we'll, we'll keep going. Or I'll say I get it. And in the workplace, again, work with those people. Unfortunately, we work in workplaces where it requires the person with ADHD to self disclose, mm-hmm. and that's why I say only do it in relationships you trust, and just go, hey. The way we've been communicating so far isn't as effective as it could be for me. If you could summarise things either at the beginning or the end, that will make it much more effective for me. Now, Del, the bit you want to add on is how can I be more effective in the way I communicate to you? Love it. And that will create a balance, yeah? So it's not, hey, Ben, you've got to change. Del, you might need to adjust the way you speak as well. So self-disclosure, unfortunately, that's a society we operate in. Some people will become conscious of it and talk to you about it, but that's a very narrow set of the population. I have that antenna because I have a granddaughter who has the same condition. So I I know more about it than I probably should as a listening expert. So self-disclosure is really important and you value the communication being really succinct or whatever you would like it to be. And then you'll be surprised where the quality of the conversation goes from there. Now, knowing Dell as well as you do, Ben, how do you think he'd take that advice?
1: I think he'd grab it with, with both hands. Yeah, without kind of oversharing. He's, he's very keen to do all that he can to sort of better kind of manage his his ADHD because he's only quite recently been, been diagnosed, so he's very much on a journey. It's a bit, it's a bit like a sponge, Dell, at the minute, just like what, what, what can I do to, to, to manage this, which I really admire about him, actually.
0: Yeah, uh, and the final reflection I would make is beware of labels. I think labels are really good on pharmaceuticals and food jars, not on people. Mm. Even the label, attention, deficit, hyperactivity, disorder, that is from a eurotypical point of view. What I'd love Dell to reflect on is this is a superpower. You think about the world completely differently than everybody else. Don't just look at what needs to be fixed about it. Look at which bits you can amplify and be your best self as well. Yeah,
1: love that. Thank you. Oscar, two things that tell me this has been an amazing conversation it'll be an amazing episode one is the time has absolutely flown by we've just tipped over an hour already and it's literally gone in the blink of an eye and number two i've barely looked at my notes and pre-prepared questions so thank you so much for for your time Sharing your wisdom and insights, and the stories you've used to to share them, because as, as you said, you you got me salivating when you was talking about Nonna's lasagna, but it's really made so much of what you've you've shared so much more memorable. So, thank you so much. Let me just finally, before we wrap up, ask you if anybody wants to get in touch, find out more about you, your work and what they do, what's the best way for them to go about doing that, please?
0: Yeah, well, don't take it personal. I don't want you to get in touch with me. I want you to get in touch with your own listening. So if you visit listeningquiz.com, you can learn more about what's getting in your way with your listening 20 questions. You'll get a five-page report, tells you what's getting in your way and give you three tailored prescriptions, simple steps to do to make progress there. And if you want to get in touch when you complete the quiz, we'll give you the coordinates for that. So listeningquiz.com, you'll find everything you need to know about your workplace listening along with 28,000 others in the world.
1: Oscar, one final time, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Hey, a quick couple of things for you before we wrap up this episode. First and foremost, thank you for joining myself and Oscar for another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. I really hope it resonated with you. But more than that, I hope there is some value in here that you can take away and use to make changes for you as a leader and those that you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. Secondly, I love getting your feedback. So please do connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts about the show or indeed any guests you would like me to interview in the future. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership. And finally, before you go, do remember to check out the show notes where you'll find the link to my brand new online program, Delegation Mastery. I created this program in response to what my community, my listeners, those completing my free 10 for 10 leadership program asked me more about because delegation is one of the most critical skills for leaders Yet at the same time, you have told me it's one of the skills that many leaders struggle to master. So this new program is designed to fix that very challenge for you once and for all. So that is it for this episode, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, look after yourself. Look after those. You've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And until then, lead on.